1967, John Smith was one of the many marine engineers assigned to look after the ship Queen Mary after it became a hotel. The job entailed routine maintenance, ensuring that the grand old ship didn't spring a leak. And so John Smith was not expecting anything out of the ordinary. But one night, Smith heard something aboard the ship that chilled him to the bone. John was in one of the lower compartments, testing the integrity of some recent welding. He pressed his ear against the hull and knocked, listening to the echoes, like a doctor might listen to a patient's cough. Strange sounds suddenly cut through the hollow knocking. At first, John thought someone was doing some unpermitted drilling. He listened closer, and the rising whine exploded into a chorus of screaming. He heard hundreds of men yelling for their lives. And then, an ear-splitting crash cut through the screams and sent John reeling back, covering his ears in pain. And finally, he heard a marine engineer's worst nightmare. The sound of rushing water. He sprinted to the extreme bow section of the ship, expecting to see a maw of torn metal and drowning men. But when he got there, he saw nothing. The ship was unbroken, and the night was calm. Except for the screaming, which seemed to come at him from all directions. John stood, frozen with fear, listening to the sounds of tragedy that could not be explained. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Queen Mary Hotel in Long Beach and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Construction of the RMS Queen Mary was completed at the John Brown Shipyard in 1936. The 1,000-foot ocean liner was built to be bigger and more powerful than the Titanic. Its builders initially intended to name the ship Victoria, but when they approached King George V and asked permission to name the ship after England's greatest queen, George replied that his wife, Queen Mary of Tech, would be delighted. The shipbuilders knew better than to correct a king. Initially serving as a luxury transport across the Atlantic, the Queen Mary contained two swimming pools, numerous beauty salons and nurseries, a music studio, and telephones that could call anywhere in the world. The immense ship ferried many famous people, including Clark Gable, George and Ira Gershwin, and Sir Winston Churchill, 
a trip aboard the Queen Mary was a real treat. Or at least, it was supposed to be. Dana walked up the gangway to the Queen Mary with a rising sense of hope in her heart. A few feet ahead, her younger sisters, Lily and Anna, took turns shooting each other with their Buck Rogers toy ray guns. Dana's mother had protested that such things were only for boys, but Dana's father had overruled her, much to Lily and Anna's joy. After the First World War, Dana's father had returned from fighting the Kaiser's army with a dark glint in his eyes. He often awoke in the night, screaming that he couldn't breathe or that the gas was burning him alive. When Dana had asked her mother what her father was talking about, she'd sent Dana to her room. For months, Dana's father wandered the house, looking at his family with hard eyes, as if he didn't know them, as if they didn't belong. But the clouds had finally parted, and Dana's father seemed like he was returning to normal. Hopefully, this trip would fully restore his spirits. Jingling the room key and whistling cheerfully, Dana's father led them to room B-474. Lily and Anna sprinted inside, running every which way like excited puppies. Dana watched her parents laugh and slip their arms around each other. Surely, Dana thought, this trip would finally bring them back together. But that night, Dana awoke to the sound of her father screaming bloody murder. Turning on the light, she saw him thrashing against the blanket as if it were trying to kill him. Face streaked with sweat, his wide eyes rolled wildly. Dana's mother tried to calm him but he struck her in his fevered thrashing and she fell to the floor. His shouts ricocheted off the walls like bullets. By the time Dana's mother managed to calm her husband down, Lily and Anna were in tears. They could only go back to sleep after climbing into bed with Dana. The next day, the hard look returned to her father's eyes. He apologized to Dana's mother whose cheek was red and swollen, but there was something chilly in his voice. While exploring the deck, Dana rounded a corner and saw him talking to someone she couldn't see. When she approached and asked him who he was talking to, he said simply, the captain. Later that day, Dana heard her father arguing with someone in the room. She peeked in and saw him sitting on the edge of the bed pleading with a dark figure standing above him. There was a hysterical edge to his voice that made Dana uneasy. She assumed her father was apologizing again to her mother, finally overcome with genuine remorse. Dana left to lounge by the pool, only to discover that her mother had been napping there the whole time. She raced back to the room, but both her father and the mysterious figure were gone. Dana searched high and low for her father, without success. She stood at the railing, tiredly watching a flock of seabirds fly away. She wished she could sprout wings and depart with them. The setting sun set the horizon ablaze. It made Dana feel as though the ship were sailing off the edge of the world and into the fires of the underworld. 
a whisper drew her attention. Turning, she saw her father descending to the lower levels of the ship. Dana hurried after him. She found herself deep in the engine room, an area supposedly off-limits to passengers. More whispers echoed back to her along the dark passageway. They seemed to be uttering something foul. But Dana couldn't quite make out the words. She ran this way and that, calling out for her father. Dana finally found him, kneeling among rattling pipes, his back to her, dressed in strange attire. As Dana approached, she saw that it was a military uniform, the color of sand. A saucer-shaped helmet sat atop his head. His whispered voice hung about him like a cloud of angry hornets. Dana finally understood what he was saying and felt her stomach drop. Kill them all, her father was saying. Kill them all. Overcome with horror, Dana grabbed his shoulder and spun him around, a rebuke forming on her lips. But it died when she saw his face. The man in the sand-colored uniform was not her father, but a stranger. Half of his face was torn away, as if in some terrible explosion. He smiled, and Dana could see all of his discolored teeth through the tattered ribbons of his cheek. She ran away, screaming. Above deck, she held her head miserably, wondering if she'd gone mad. After eventually finding her way out of the engine room, Dana came back to room B-474, the hope in her heart replaced by a heavy dread. The once exciting ship now felt claustrophobic. She just wanted to sleep through the rest of this damn trip. Dana opened the door to their room. The light from the hallway shone upon three human shapes lying on the bed. Dana assumed that her mother and sisters had the same idea she did. Something moved over by the bathroom. Dana closed the door and stepped in. Her father stepped out of the bathroom, holding the Buck Rogers ray gun. Dana's eyes were still adjusting to the dim light of the room, and her father's face was lost to shadow. But Dana could sense something was not right. When her eyes finally adjusted, she gasped in horror. Lily and Anna laid side by side, straight as matchsticks, their glazed eyes staring at nothing. Dark bruises crowded their tiny throats. Their mother lay next to them, one arm thrown over them, as if in comfort. Similar bruises purpled her neck. Dana wept. Looking back, she saw that her father wasn't holding a toy. He raised the barrel of a service revolver at his eldest daughter. I have my orders, he said, his eyes hard and deranged. As the gun smoke cleared, Dana's father saw his eldest daughter lying dead on the bathroom floor. The hardness suddenly disappeared from his eyes, and he fell to the floor, weeping terribly with the realization of what he had done. 
He held Dana close, gently touching her still warm cheek. Then, slowly, he raised the gun to his own head. They were found the next day. Lily and Anna lay by their mother's side. Dana and her father in the bathroom. The walls slick with their blood. Room B-474 is known as the most haunted place aboard the ship. Guests have seen an unseen force throwing their belongings violently about and a disembodied voice urging them to get out. Eventually, the staff of the Queen Mary had to close room B-474. It was considered too much of a liability to let people stay there. Until now. On Friday the 13th of April 2018, 30 years after the initial closing, room B-474 was reopened to the public. Equipped with a Ouija board, tarot cards, and a crystal ball, the room is available for any daring guest who wishes to attempt contact with the other side. At your own risk, of course. But the tragedy of Dana and her family was just the start of the terrible history of the Queen Mary. Soon it would be swept up in the chaos of another great war and be responsible for taking many more lives. We'll hear about this great tragedy when we return. Now, back to the story. When the Second World War began its destructive march across the globe, the Queen Mary was called to serve as a troop ship, transporting troops to and from Allied ports. The biggest threat to Allied troop ships were German U-boats, which sank almost 3,000 Allied ships during the war. But the Queen Mary, with a top speed of 32.5 knots, could outrun the enemy torpedoes, which had top speeds of only 25 knots. This made the Queen Mary a formidable tool. Long before sunrise on the morning of October 2nd, 1942, Glenn, a petty officer aboard the HMS Curacao, took a break from cleaning the oil drums and made his way above deck for a smoke. Glenn tossed an oily cleaning rag over his shoulder, smearing his uniform, and looked out over the icy waters of the Atlantic. He took out a silver lighter and lit his cigarette. That lighter was the only possession he'd managed to save from his home before it was destroyed in the Blitz. Touching that charred lighter somehow calmed Glenn's easily seasick stomach. It reminded him of why he was there. The bow of the Curacao cut back and forth in a zigzag over the waves to confuse any German U-boats that might be lurking beneath the surface. With a ship this size, the motion made Glenn constantly feel off balance. The Curacao was big, a C-class cruiser built for the British Royal Navy, weighing over 4,000 tons and boasting anti-aircraft guns and torpedo tubes. It was a formidable craft, but it was only intended as an escort. The Curacao and its crew were often dwarfed by the troop ships they escorted. 
and the ship they were escorting that night made them look like a wooden dinghy. Glenn looked out at the impenetrable darkness of the ocean and thought about how the whole bloody war was like taking a boat across deep fathoms, waiting for some unseen enemy to break the surface and swallow you whole. The constant paranoia kept him up at night. Well, that and the dreams of explosions. He still had a ringing in his ears that he suspected would never go away. Suddenly, the ringing in Glenn's ears was cut through by a much louder sound. The clanking of the ship's alarm bell. Bracing himself, Glenn scanned the surface of the water, looking for the nose of a U-boat, or even worse, the frothing V-shape that marked an approaching torpedo. But it was not an enemy that Glenn saw. It was the vessel they were escorting, a fellow British ship known as the Grey Ghost. Her hull, painted an ashy gray color, emerged silently out of the fog, like some forgotten leviathan towering above Glen. She was headed right for them. For a split second, Glen was back in the London shelter, listening to the approach of German bombers, waiting for death to come on fiery wings. Glenn dived to the side as the large ship slammed into the side of the Curacao, slicing the smaller ship completely in half. His ears were filled with the hellish screams of tearing metal as he leapt over the side. He was engulfed in the absolute cold and quiet of the Atlantic below. When he surfaced, gasping for air, he had just enough time to see the eviscerated halves of the Curacao before they disappeared below the waves. Glenn pumped his arms to stay above the surface of the dark water, which was stained even blacker by the hemorrhage of oil and fuel. All around Glenn, men he'd sailed with and broken bread with were choking on the poisoned water as they fought against the deadly cold. He waited for the other ship to turn around and come rescue them, but it continued on. Glenn's arms grew tired as he paddled furiously to keep his head above the soiled water. He knew he wouldn't be able to stay afloat for long. With his final breath, Glenn cursed the RMS Queen Mary as it methodically drifted away, leaving the crew of the Curacao behind in the frozen clutches of the sea. In 1942, at the peak of the Second World War, the Queen Mary, which would become one of the most haunted ships in the world, crashed into the HMS Curacao and left over 300 sailors to freeze to death in the Atlantic Ocean. The Queen Mary traveled over 600,000 miles, going back and forth between America and Europe at least 120 times, and is said to have been part of almost every Allied military campaign. Many claim Churchill planned the infamous D-Day invasion while aboard the Queen Mary. The ship even transported many of those ill-fated troops to the French shore. It's not hard to imagine the Grey Ghost's notorious ash-colored hull stained red by the bloody low tide swept off the beaches at Normandy.
After the war, the world's thirst for blood was more than sated. But unfortunately for many, the Queen Mary was still parched. On a calm night in 1949, second officer William Stark popped into the office of F.R. Stokes, the captain steward. Stark was known on board as an entertainer, a real gasser who liked to crack his men up with a joke or a prank. On long nights, when the sea sent frigid gales over the bow, his warm, <laughs> hearty laugh echoed down the long corridors, making his fellow sailors feel a little less lonely. Stark explained to Stokes that he had just come off duty and was feeling a bit under the weather. The cold wind, it seemed, had finally managed to pierce his warm personality. The captain had kindly given him permission to have a drink of gin. But the problem, Stark explained, was that despite his best efforts, he was unable to find any of that most seafaring of liquors. Serving as the captain's steward, Stokes was responsible for keeping inventory of supplies and for making sure those supplies found their way into the hands of the sailors. Stokes was not the captain's usual steward, and he was unfamiliar with the pantry. But Stokes, wanting to appease the affable man, looked anyway. Finally, he discovered an unmarked gin bottle and promptly handed it over to Stark, who thanked him with a wink and a smile. Believing the matter resolved, Stokes returned to his work. A few minutes later, Stark stumbled back into the steward's office. Stokes saw immediately that something was wrong. Stark's face was the sour green of curdled cheese. A pink frothing gathered around his lips. It took Stokes a moment to realize that the second officer's mouth was bleeding. That was not gin you gave me. Stark managed to gurgle before collapsing to the floor. Stokes discovered that particular bottle had been storing tetrachloride, an acid used for cleaning. In his eagerness for a drink and being unable to smell due to his cold, Stark didn't detect the error until a full swallow of the corrosive liquid had burned its way down his gullet. It took four full days for Stark to finally succumb to his poisoning. During those four days, the Queen Mary's halls, so accustomed to Stark's laughter, were instead filled with his agonized choking and gasping as he struggled to breathe. All the men were grim after Stark's death, but none were so low as Stokes. He took hard to the very drink Stark had been looking for, making himself sick for weeks to follow. Stokes wandered the halls. As two petty officers came down the hall toward him, Stokes reached for them, grabbing one by the front of his shirt. With tears running down his face, he tried to explain to them how it had all been an accident, that he hadn't meant any harm, that all he wanted was forgiveness. With their eyes cast down, the two other men pushed Stokes away and left him alone. One night, Stokes was roused from a drunken stupor by a strange sound outside his room. It sounded as if some were suffocating in the hallway. He threw open the door, but no one was there. Just an empty gin bottle on the hallway floor. 
With trembling hands, Stokes picked it up. The meaning of the bottle cut through his drunken haze. Stokes was not forgiven. The next day, Stokes was found dead at his room, wrists slashed with a broken gin bottle. To this day, the specter of Stark is seen wandering the captain's cabin and the main deck. People report hearing horrible choking sounds, and when they investigate, find no one. After the war, the Queen Mary returned to transporting civilians across the Atlantic, including many war brides and their children. But by the 1960s, emerging air travel made ocean liners increasingly obsolete. On December 9, 1967, after being sold to the city of Long Beach, California for $3.45 million, the Queen Mary was permanently docked. Once a luxury ocean liner and illustrious military vessel, she was transformed a third and final time into a luxury hotel and museum. After nearly three decades traversing the vast waters of the Atlantic, the Queen Mary would finally get the rest she deserved. But the trail of dead she had left, like a noxious oil slick in her wake, caught up with her. And the dead had other plans. We'll visit these spirits right after the break. Now, back to the story. You're overwhelmed by the grandeur of the Queen Mary's interior. Red carpet staircases, marble pillars, and the long, polished wood hallways leading to a seemingly endless series of hotel rooms. You had no idea that a boat could fit so many rooms, let alone all the history that your tour guide's been rattling off with a practiced, if slightly bored, tone. But as you descend into the metal guts of the ship, 50 feet below the surface of the water, all the glamour and refurbishment gives way to a labyrinthine root system of rusty iron walkways and heavy watertight doors. Huge pipes worm their way overhead. The tour guide explains that they once carried the high-pressure steam needed to power the ship's industrious motors. You can imagine them hissing like angry pythons. A chill runs down your spine, and you shake it off. A sudden sound makes you jump. Low moaning echoes down a corridor toward you. Peeling off from the tour, you make your way toward it. But as you approach, the moaning gets louder, deeper. Clearly a man. You round the corner, and the moaning suddenly stops. You're at a dead end, facing a door with the number 13 painted on it. The hallway is empty. You feel the chill return. Maybe leaving the tour wasn't such a good idea. The huge gears above the door remind you of a giant can opener. You shudder to think of what might happen to a finger unfortunate enough to slip between those thick metal teeth. That's when you see it. A handprint, smeared in some dark substance across the door. Grease. You try to blink the image away, 
convince yourself it's just a shadow or chipped paint. But you can see the imprint of a hand distinctly, the whorls of the fingers and the lines of the palm. A low moan behind you fills your belly with ice. Slowly, you turn to see a man standing behind you. Young, almost a boy, dressed in old-fashioned overalls stained with grease. Something is wrong with him, and it's not just his choice of clothes. You glance down from his face and realize this man isn't standing. He's hovering. The entire lower half of his body is gone. His midsection a crushed pulp of blood and torn flesh. Dizzy with fear, you look at the man's sorrowful face. He reaches for you. You turn to run and see that, somehow, door number 13 has swung open. Cold breath hits your neck. There's no time to think, so you leap past the door into the next room. Your feet land in a puddle of something, and you go sprawling to the floor. Heart hammering, you reach out desperately, searching for anything to grab hold of. Your hand closes around something soft and wet. Lying in front of you is a pair of legs in white overalls. Dark red blood steadily oozing from the ragged stump of torso. Turning, you see bone-white fingers curl around the edge of the door. The man's face emerges, his sorrow replaced by a mad glee. As he floats past the door, you see that in his other hand, he grips a rusty handsaw. A burst of adrenaline shoots through your body, forcing you to your feet. But in your eagerness to get away, you slip again in the pool of blood. This time, your feet slip out from under you completely, and you fall on your back, hitting your head hard. Everything goes dark for a moment. In the blackness, you pray that this is all a dream. But when your vision returns, the half-man floats above you, a ghastly grin on his face. You try to convince yourself that you must be hallucinating, but then you feel a coil of intestine drag up your leg, leaving a glistening trail behind it, and know in your bones that this is real. With his free hand, the man reaches into the pocket of his overalls and takes out a thread and a needle. Holding his tools aloft, the man's purpose becomes suddenly clear. As the teeth of his saw press into your waist, you close your eyes and hope it will be over soon. The metal teeth pull away, and then... Nothing. Silence presses in and you're too afraid to open your eyes. Suddenly, a loud metal bang startles you. You open your eyes. You're alone, back on the other side of the door. No sign of the mutilated phantom or his terrible tools. As you get up, you realize there's something pressed into the palm of your hand. Bringing it close, you realize that it's a cloth tag, 
the kind you find inside the hemline of pants. This one is old, and the ink is badly faded, but you can make out a faint number. It's then you realize why you're still in one piece. You're the wrong size. The Queen Mary is one of the most haunted places in the world. There have been 49 recorded deaths aboard the ship, and as many as 150 spirits have been seen lurking on her decks or wandering her elegant hallways. One of the most famous of these ghosts is the restless spirit of 18-year-old sailor John Petter, or as he has come to be known among those who witness him, Half-Hatch Harry. In the early morning of July 10, 1966, Petter was participating in a fire drill in the engine room. As part of the drill, sailors were passing through several of the ship's massive watertight doors, which were meant to staunch any break in the hull. The doors were operated by massive iron gears and took a full 60 seconds to close. Once they began closing, it was impossible to stop them. It's unclear whether Petter was playing a game with his fellow laborers, seeing how many times he could go back and forth through the door before it closed. Maybe he was simply trying to hurry through at the last minute. We can't know for sure. All we know is that something went wrong, and he was crushed by the implacable iron door, dying instantly. Since then, people have reported seeing a figure in old-fashioned white coveralls tinkering in the engine room near door 13, some even claiming to see greasy handprints on their clothes. Some say it's Petter's ghost trying to caution others as they pass by the fatal door to prevent them from making the same horrible mistake. Others believe old half-hatch Harry is angry about being cut down in the prime of his life and seeking to restore himself to his physical prime. Lurking in the shadowy bowels of the engine room, he waits for just the right pair of legs to stroll by. He was good at repairing engines with spare parts. Why should human flesh be any different? The Queen Mary has undergone many renovations since becoming a hotel. One of the most significant is the construction of the Royal Theater, a 10,000-square-foot theater capable of seating an audience of over 1,000. The theater was built to replace the first- and second-class pool areas. During the ship's time as a luxury ocean liner, the pool served as places for passengers to lounge in the sun as their children splashed gleefully. The new Royal Theatre aimed to replace the sounds of playing children with the latest Hollywood soundtracks. But one child's voice refuses to keep quiet, even to this day. Jacqueline Torin, or Jackie as she was known by the staff of the Queen Mary, was a young girl of about five or six who rode aboard the ship in her ocean liner days. One night, she managed to slip away from the watchful eyes of her parents. Perhaps they were distracted by one of the ship's many fancy galas, or maybe they had simply fallen asleep in their stateroom. Whatever the case, Jackie was left alone and found her way to the second-class pool area. 
She was young and not a strong swimmer. The new shoes her parents bought her made Jackie's feet ache. She took them off and let her feet cool off in the pool. As she swished her feet in the water, Jackie sang her favorite song to amuse herself. London Bridge is Falling Down. From the center of the pool, a second young voice joined in. Jackie looked up, surprised, and saw a little boy. He was standing atop the water, his little toes not even rippling the pool's surface. Smiling, he waved to Jackie, inviting her to join in his game. Jackie was too young to sense the danger. She jumped out to meet her new friend. There was no one there to catch her. Her body was found the next morning, the apparent victim of drowning. Her new shoes sat at the bottom of the pool, the laces waving like seaweed in the clear blue water. As the years went on, visitors and crew members reported hearing a splashing coming from the area, as well as a child's laughter echoing through the air. Even after construction of the theater, the sound of tiny feet skipping across the pool deck could be heard. Jackie's spirit remains playful at heart, despite her tragic end. In more recent years, ghost hunters and purported psychics have tried to make contact with Jackie, as she is one of the more recurrent phantoms. They claim to have recorded full-blown conversations with the young ghost, where she laughs and dances. One such recording claims to be Jackie singing, London Bridge is Falling Down. The ghost hunters and the psychics share a common claim about Jackie, that like all lost little girls, all she wants is to be reunited with her parents. There are many recordings of her calling out for them as she wanders the deck, never finding them. Perhaps she hopes that one day they'll answer, and that's why her spirit is so willing to communicate. You can decide for yourself what she's saying, a quick Google search will reveal many of these recordings. The haunted history of the Queen Mary is not exactly an unwelcome subject for the hotel's management. Nighttime tours promise that when the sun goes down, the spirits aboard the Queen Mary come out to play. The hotel also offers a Dining with the Spirits event, where guests can enjoy award-winning food in the Sir Winston's restaurant, while being treated to a haunted history. With tickets to these events running at around $50 per person, it's safe to say that the spooks and specters aboard the Queen Mary are good for business. Knowing that, you might believe that the 82-year-old ship's curse is merely the stuff of legend, ancient history, no more dangerous than a fairy tale. You would be gravely mistaken. In December of 2011, a 26-year-old woman was heard arguing with her boyfriend aboard the Queen Mary Hotel. They'd been drinking, and the young woman was very upset. She ran to the edge of the ship's gangway. Her boyfriend followed. A witness would later claim that after 10 minutes of arguing, the woman shouted, I don't want to live. I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't want to go on. She leapt from the gangway 
Martin plummeted 75 feet into the icy water below. The Long Beach Fire Department reported that five different people jumped into the frigid surf to attempt to save her. A fireman, two police officers, her boyfriend, and a hotel employee, all of whom would have to be treated for hypothermia. The rigorous rescue attempt was unsuccessful. The young woman was pronounced dead by the hospital, and another wayward soul checked into the Queen Mary Hotel for an indefinite stay. Is the Queen Mary cursed? Is it possible that all the gruesome deaths that happened inside her heavy steel walls have somehow imbued the ship with an appetite for blood? Or is it simply a vessel that many lost spirits have made their final resting place? The real question is, are you brave enough to check in and see for yourself? Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by David Calbert. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>